The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. Well, welcome to the session on food literacy. We are going to have a lot of fun today. The session is going to involve you, and uh, we're going to have some very experiential activities and conversation, and we're going to talk about some leading programs in the area of food literacy. So looking forward to it. How is this? OK, great. Uh, so welcome. I'd like to introduce myself and my co-presenter, uh, Allison Wiley. Now, if there are any Jared Lawson groupies in the audience, I'm very sorry to say that I got an email from him this morning saying he was deathly sick with a bad cold. I hope you'll stay, though, because we are going to have some fun here. Um, so we, there's one person that was going to be a presenter that, that will not be here. Um, my name is Kirk Bergstrom. I'm the executive director of a nonprofit based in San Francisco called WorldLink. And one of our flagship initiatives is called Nourish, Food Plus Community. And uh, we're going to tell you more about that uh, today. Uh, and one thing, uh, Allison, why don't you come over here? And, oh, you, you've got a mic. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Got a mic. Is it on? And can you hear me? OK. You're good. Introduce yourself. Go OK, ahead. I'm Allison Wiley. And I, too, am disappointed that Jared's not here today. So I can commiserate with you. Um, but we're here, and we do have fun stuff for you. I'm from the north, northern California, really northern. I know a lot of people call this northern California, but I'm north. I actually live in Red Bluff, and I work at Chico State, so I'm in Chico. Oh, really? Yeah, we're neighbors. Okay, that's cool. She's from Shingletown. That's, that's cool. So my work with Chico State, it's the Center for Nutrition and Activity Promotion. And I work in schools, K-8 settings. I've had a lot of experience with the Nourish curriculum that we're going to talk a little bit about today. But just in starting, maybe, I don't know how many of you are starting your food literacy programs, reaching out to schools and communities, that's why I'm invited, because I've done that with school-age kids. And one thing I always love to do is just get a feel for who's in the room. So I see some young faces. How many students? Great. How many practicing educators in formal or informal ed? Excellent. How many kind of activists, nonprofit leaders, community leaders? Great. And a farmer. Oh, good. I love it. <laughs> Well, one of the things that I really want to honor in these Bioneer sessions is, you know, amazing people come to Bioneers. E each one of you has a wealth of experience to share. So, you know, we've got some activities today that will allow you to learn from one another, to share with one another. And I'd like to actually start with a simple one that gets us back in touch with our relationship to food. And so this is going to be um, what we call a think, pair, share, where you're just going to reflect for a couple moments about the question I'm going to ask. And then you're going to pair up with someone and share your story. And then we'll invite a few of those uh, stories uh, for the whole room. So the prompt is this. Go back to your childhood and think about your first memory of eating a freshly picked fruit or vegetable. Go as far back as you can, your first memory of eating a freshly picked fruit or vegetable. We'll give you a minute to kind of lock in on something that is in your 
your presence now, and then uh, we'll pair you up, okay? Hopefully, good memories are coming back. So go ahead and pair up with someone near you, or if you need to, move across the room or across the row, and uh, share that first memory with someone. Go ahead. We'll give you a couple minutes. Tell you what's going on. All right, begin to wrap up, if you could. I saw lots of smiles there. So I'd love to hear some of the stories that surfaced as you reflected on that question. I've asked this around dinner tables and 
you know, at retreats, and I am constantly blown away by the, the richness and beauty of what people remember. And so I'd love to hear from some of you. Go ahead, just raise your hand if you want to briefly tell your first memory. Okay. What kind of tomatoes? Ohio. So he's Ohio tomatoes that he had that are no. In 1950. 1950, no longer available. Tomatoes today are a zero compared to those ones. How about you? Brushing the spikes off of the cucumbers. And I grew up on a farm in Tennessee, and so we often had the prickly cucumbers, and we were talking about how a lot of people may not even realize that cucumbers have those little spiky things on the side because you don't see those not even in farmer's markets on cucumbers. So, Yeah, a lot of Asian markets have those still. So prickly cucumbers. What else? Anyone over here? Yes, back there. Wait, I'll... Do I need the mic? Oh, oh there, there you go. Uh, so I grew up in suburban New Jersey, um, and my parents always cultivated a garden in our backyard, and my first memory is that I had my own strawberry plant in my own little planter, and I remember being, like, really tiny and, like, probably very close to the actual plant and being so excited watching them grow and finally being able to eat them and... Um, understanding that like they had different, like what the growth of the fruit was, you know, eating them too soon and what would happen if I wanted a strawberry to get too big and then it would fall off and rot or it was like, it was great, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, I, I grew up in Venice. Um, I grew up in Venice and, and, um, and my recollection, I have two recollections. One was fruit because um, my, my grandparents had a, farm in Paso Robles, so apricots, apples, cherries were, I remember the fruit, but I was trying to remember where I, my first vegetables I came from. And there were some fields out where I used to ride my bicycle to play baseball. To and, um, and my folks would have me pick, uh, and they were bean fields and corn. But I so that was my recollection of getting he's um, like fresh beans and fresh be corn. Around was riding yeah. my bike out there and collecting they it for, clear for our family. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Stories just keep coming. Um, this is, I don't mean for this to be a buzzkill, but I think that if we're all involved in food literacy, it's because we want to be connecting people with their food. Um, and so I shared that I grew up in the 80s in a middle-class family, and we did whatever you good American middle-class family did in the 80s. We had a lot of canned food, canned beans, canned corn, um, fast food. I ate fast food all the way through high school and didn't really have any powerful food um, experiences because that wasn't what food was about for middle-class families in the 80s and probably still isn't now for a lot of inner-city and lower-class families, um, or lower-income families, excuse me. And so uh, when I was in college and um, in my 20s and I started eating food from our farmer's market, um, it was very powerful for me. And I am now a, a subsistence farmer. We raise organic fruits and vegetables, and I'm a, 
I'm very influenced by it, and I reach out to people about food. But I think it's sort of a, um, a thing that happens in environmental groups is that we all think that everybody has these profound experiences when they're young, and so it can be kind of alienating for people who don't have access to that food now that we all have this notion that you have to have some powerful memory. So sorry for the buzzkill, but <laughs> not everybody has them from their youth. Well, part of food literacy is recognizing that this happens at different times and for different reasons. So thank you. That's, to me, that's food literacy in action right there. <laughs> Great. Well, I can relate to the uh, buzzkill because I think in a lot of ways I grew up in that same environment. However, we did have blackberries at my dad's business that just grew amok. And that was just a wonderful experience because I just remember my mom making all these incredible things. We'd have the canned food, we'd have the, the uh, TV dinners <clears throat> with the purple milk, <laughs> and then we'd have the blackberries, and it was a whole different purple and a whole different experience. And I just remember wondering, gosh, you know, why can't we have this all year round? And learning little things about, oh, well, they only grow, you know, certain times. And this is just, these are plants that were going wild in a, inner, basically an inner city environment. And I just remember those just incredible experiences having those fresh, wonderful berries. So definitely stay with me. Thank you. You know, okay, one more. Um, it's a little off topic, but my um, daughter, who is 22, got to, as part of her education in college, got to work on an organic farm in Missoula, where we live. And she um, came home one day and said, she has never known a sense of responsibility in her life until she was responsible for keeping those t teeny little seedlings alive and that she was in the middle of doing something and she remembered that she had to go water them and she knew that it was up to her to keep those plants alive. So I just, I don't know why I wanted to share that. No, that's great. Yeah, well, you know, one of our assumptions about food literacy is that the more you understand about the story of your food, the more food literate you're going to be. And, you know, this little sampling really showed us that when you're connected to more of that story, the source, and hopefully even who grew it and the conditions it was grown, uh, the season, things like that, you become more food literate. Uh, so what, what I'd like to do now is just to share a few kind of big picture slides that help to define what we mean by food literacy. This is a relatively new term, and uh, you know, I think it's important for us as we're building a movement to have kind of common language and common understanding. So just want to show a few slides and uh, welcome questions if they emerge, and then we're going to get back into some uh, activities that involve you. By the way, anyone here from uh, Massachusetts by any chance? Hey. That's Lincoln Farm in Massachusetts. The Food Project has a wonderful farm there. So yeah, here's our, our big question. What is food literacy and why does it matter? Here's our, our kind of simple poetic definition of food literacy. Understanding the story of our food from farm to table and back to the soil. And what's really important about this is that it defines food literacy as something that considers the whole system. And I think most bioneers are systems thinkers to begin with. So, you know, I'm definitely preaching to the choir here. Um, one of the things we find, though, and this is particularly true when food 
enters the traditional like K-12 curriculum, very, very seldom are they thinking about the food system as a whole, the food culture as a whole. And you know, really what we're left with is often nutrition education you know, or something like that that's very reductionist, that's dealing with such a small part of the overall food experience. So that's one definition. And then here's another one. The ability to make informed choices about food that support one's health, community, and the environment. And, you know, of course, this tells us that food literacy is about active citizenship, about applying what we know to create a healthier food culture and food system. So it, it very much is aspirational in that way. And why does it matter? I think, you know, we all intuitively know why it matters. But one of the things, you know, that we have encountered is when people are more food literate, when they better understand the story of their food, good things happen. And, you know, the way I would kind of explain that is, as people get more food literate, not only do they want to make change in their individual life and in their families and their organizations, you know, it ripples out into the community, into policy, into education. So we can't have that kind of, you know, uh, food literate citizen if we don't have food literacy, you know, in our schools and organizations. And then food literacy really is the first step in, in shifting a food culture. I don't know how you do it if you don't have food literate people. And I think we can find some analogies with other big issues. So, you know, let's look at healthcare or climate change. Because we don't have a fully either <laughs> healthcare literate or climate literate citizenry, these things are really hard to move forward in terms of, you know, substantive change. So, you know, let's solve that with food by having a more food literate citizenry. And to design new food system, we absolutely need a new food culture. And so I think it's also worth you know, looking at a definition for what is food culture. This is a picture I took last weekend at the Presidio. They have the food trucks there now on the weekend. And you know, that's really kind of an indicator of our Northern California food culture. Um, but shared values, traditions, and practices surrounding food. And it expresses itself you know, at multiple levels. Um, so I think this, again, is it's an important idea, you know, that we really think about what food culture is and we examine it, you know, within the various contexts that we live and work. And, you know, this is kind of a no-brainer, but if you're going to transform a food culture, you know, you have to involve as many people as possible. And this is really true, I think, when you're looking uh, to bring a food literacy program into a school or a community or, organ or organization or a faith-based community. Um, you know, get everyone involved. Uh, and so at a school level, you know, that's students, teachers, administrators, parents, food service staff, health workers, et cetera, um, because it really is a, a, a team activity. And, you know, this is a question that I love to just present because how often do we ask this? You know, but to be food literate, you know, what should all students learn and, and practice before they graduate from high school or college? Um, and I, I think this is a, a really important one. One of the things that we've done as an organization is we've been working on developing what we call a food literacy rubric. So how do you measure food literacy in an individual or a group? And if anyone's interested in that, I'm glad to send it to them uh, as a, a PDF. Uh, we kind of break it into core concepts, values, and practices, and 
we've created 20 indicators of what a food literate person is, and you can be kind of a, a beginner stage or an intermediate or advanced. Um, but it, it, it's important, I think, that we think about this comprehensively. And my last question before we continue is just really this, you know, what is your vision for a healthy food culture? I think it's very, you know, worthwhile to reflect on this and, you know, this can be true, again, at any scale, your individual life, your family, your school, your community. So um, let, let's hold a vision for the kind of food culture we want to create. All right, I think it's time for Allison to lead a, an activity and, um, I'm going to let her tell you more about it. It's uh, on the theme of food traditions. But first the video. But first the video. <laughs> Thank you. But first the video. So we are going to do an activity while he gets this, after we watch this movie, and I'll talk while he gets this set up. One of the things that I love about my job is I get to work with college students. And I teach, um, we have a lot of nutrition students that work for us, kinesiology, health, just a whole spectrum of students. And I share with them the Nourish curriculum. I keep pointing, but it's not actually standing up. The Nourish curriculum, you can actually get it for free. It's online. It's www.nourishlife.org. And this is one of the lessons that we do with the curriculum. So we're going to start with the video. All right. And our audio folks back there, you ready? favorite things to do is go to the farmer's market on Sunday mornings. When you're getting food from a local producer, when you're getting it from within a hundred miles, when you're getting it after it's been picked freshly that morning, it's going to be so much more flavorful. I think the greatest joy I get from farming is when people tell me how incredible that tomato is, how incredible that potato is. It's about having a relationship and taking responsibility for your food. You know the person who's growing your food. And in the farmer's market, there's so much opportunity for us to really acknowledge and honor the people who grow good, clean, whole foods and bring them to us. I know when I show up at the farmer's market that the food is local, that it's good for me, and that my dollar is going basically back to the farmer who grew the food. We are helping to strengthen the local economy, supporting our neighbors. It's up to us to ensure that farmers can continue to do the work that they do and provide us with the fresh healthy local food that we all deserve. Okay, so that's going to introduce us to what we're actually going to do. Is it too echoey? Am I echoing? Am I okay? Yeah? Okay, so we're talking about food tradition, right? We were talking about the farmer's market there. The story of food is embedded in the stories of who we are and is part of our history. So with this lesson, I like to always have, I always show a video, but I also like to write the essential question, and you can't see it, I did write that essential question, because I like the visual, I want you to see as I go through, and you can see the PowerPoint and all the new, the new things that I want you to read, but I don't want you to forget what my essential question is. Okay, and I'm gonna read it to you, but I think we have it on a slide too. Coming up. What can we learn about our culture 
and one another through the foods we eat. So we already learned through some of the prompts that you guys gave. So if I put this up here on the essential question, that way you've got people whose minds are wandering or whatever, you know, you're tired or you're super involved. You guys are so involved. This has been a long day, maybe a long weekend, so much interesting information, and you guys are so into this, I love it. But sometimes even your mind will wander. So it's good to have it written up here. This is just a tip. So that's my tip. Have it written. It's not as fancy. And then also go through your slides. So we're going to talk about our stories and celebrating family food traditions. Let me read. I have a quote that I just want to share from Michael Pollan. Food is not just fuel. Food is about family. You've probably heard it. Food is about community. Food is about identity. And we nourish all those things when we eat well. So what I'd like you to do is maybe find a different partner. We're going to pair share again. And I want you to look at these prompts. And we're going to talk about what are some special foods your family eats for holidays. And then what food traditions does your family have for birthdays and celebrations? And then do, you, do any of your family foods or traditions have family stories connected to them? And you guys are such an awesome audience that you, you probably can think of things right away. With kids, it's really hard to draw these things out. So sometimes with kids, I'll just start the conversation. I went back there to you, and you, you were having a hard time remembering your vegetables. And I said, well, maybe, did you go to a pumpkin patch? Just kind of start talking about things that maybe everybody's done. Did, did you start with that? Do you remember maybe picking an apple while you're at a pumpkin patch? Because that's not going to be your first vegetable probably at the pumpkin patch. But then with kids too, it's what do you do at dinner time? So what's your pattern? What's your ritual? What's your rule? Do you get to have technology at the table? What kind of things does your family have to follow? So for us, these questions are going to guide you. If you were doing this in a group that wasn't as maybe interested as you guys, you got to pull it out first and then let them go. So I'm going to let you go. Go ahead, get together, and answer these questions. We need Jeopardy music.
give you another minute. Be sure you share with each other. I'm going to invite you to finish your story and come on back. <laughs> I think some of you are sharing some really good stories. Finishing up here. Does anybody want to share any of the stories that they heard? I'd love to hear something that you found interesting about someone else. So tell me about someone else. Thank you. Okay. So my friend here is from Spain. She's visiting. Um, she's my friend's exchange. And she told me about a holiday that they celebrate. What was it called? Um, <laughs> well, uh, we call it um, Roscon de Reyes. It's in Spanish, so you... Yeah, and she told me about some of the things that they eat, and it sounded really delicious. One of them is chicken stuffed with apples, and what was another one? The sweet bread with um, sugared fruit, kind of, is a traditional dessert. And what else? What was the other thing? Oh, a soup with eggs and vegetables and onions. Um, and it's just interesting to hear about some other traditional foods from a holiday in a different country that we don't celebrate here because I'm so used to, like, turkey and stuffing and all that stuff. So, And you know what? There's nothing wrong with turkey and stuffing. We want to we we be fine with what people share, right? But that is really interesting. I was thinking, oh, apples are in season. Well, I could do chicken and apples. That's a really good idea. So I'm always thinking about that, too. Do you want to share yours? Okay. So I grew up in Germany until I was nine. And um, to this day, my mom for Christmas will make uh, recipes that have been passed down from our um, grandparents. And I swear that you, you can't even get these type of cookies like anywhere in the States. They're mind-blowing. And she would keep them all these tins. And um, my dad would read to us, or we'd play family games together, and we'd pull out the tins. And there was always a, what do we call it, a Christmas mouse because sometimes the cookies would disappear out of the tins. <laughs> That's really cute. And you know, you do get hungry when you talk about food all the time, always. We have to always have a tasting, maybe a cooking demo when we talk about food. How about you? You want to share about somebody else in your group, something that you found interesting about somebody else? And I have to say, you get a star because you remembered your friends. Oh, back here. Here, I'll come back to you. You remembered your friends. So often with kids, all they hear is what they're saying. They don't hear what the other person has said to them. So good job. Uh, so Tom and I were talking about Thanksgiving, and he was uh, uh, he was telling me that he grew up with a traditional American Thanksgiving turkey and stuffing. But um, I was really appreciating how he was saying how um, food holiday 
holiday food traditions have shifted for him because his wife uh, is Chinese. And so now he gets to experience food, holiday food in a different way and finds himself gravitating towards the Chinese dishes that are sitting next to the turkey and stuffing. Um, and the more diversity from what he experienced when he was growing up. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. Okay, I'm going to come back to you. Did, you. did you figure something out? Oh, she's got one for you. There you go, right there behind you. So uh, she shared a story about her grandfather who really enjoyed uh, canned cranberry sauce at oh, the holidays okay. that he would slice yeah. up. And one holiday she made a homemade cranberry sauce, oh, good. which she was really disappointed by because he really liked his canned cranberry <laughs> sauce. Because it had the ridges around it. I know exactly. It had like lines for slicing. And he, and he loved that because also he grew up uh, in Tennessee, you know, in a ridge. And, and uh, the canned cranberry sauce was kind of a sign uh, that they'd made it. They were able to buy food. Did you guys hear that? i got to repeat that for the tape. The canned cranberry sauce was a sign that they had made it, yeah, that they it could was, afford fancy the, canned food. Right, fancy canned food, because they canned their own food for their entire lives, you know? And so to be able to buy canned food was special. And so for me, to be able to make cranberry sauce from scratch was really special, because I hated the, you know, whatever that was in the can. <laughs> And so it was, just, it was just an interesting thing. I just remember the look on his face. But where's the other cranberry sauce? Yeah. Isn't that interesting that the canned was the, was the good? That's so interesting, I think. So you can, oh, I'm going to let you share. You're from? Shingletown. Shingletown. That's right. You're my neighbor. Here you go, neighbor. <laughs> Mine is not something that happened to David. It rem that reminded me. when we, we raised our own winter squashes for years and years, and so we make our pumpkin pie from butternut squash usually. And my, mo my mother would eat it, but she said, I really prefer that canned pumpkin filling. <laughs> Fooey. It's easier, right? It's easier. Oh, that's funny. She likes to take. You want to share, too? Go. Yeah. Now it's on. And, and that is sort of uh, ch changing traditions because that was also one of the things that we were talking about. And it sort of reminded me like I came from a very traditional mm -hmm. um, Thanksgiving and Christmas kind of meal mm -hmm. with uh, ham or turkey or, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. But now during the Christmas season, you know, we get together and um, we make our own, you know, dim sum, you know, mm -hmm. and we make our own noodles and. This um, is a really a fun really, activity because you do learn that. There's yeah. all kinds of interesting things. And there's fabulous ways of making new traditions. You don't have to stick to those old right, traditions. Right, and I think that is kind of the point that I, mm -hmm. I have sort of you know, would mm -hmm. pass on. With the many teachers and classrooms that I've been in, just um, the Super Bowl, there's a tradition. Kids can't remember their tradition. They can't remember Thanksgiving. They can't remember Christmas. They remember the Super Bowl, and they remember the chili, and they remember the nachos, and they remember that they get to eat unlimited amounts. So I'm just encouraging you. Are you standing to cut me off? I'm just worried. <laughs> okay. So I'm encouraging you, when you do this with kids and your community, because they're not all going to be ready to share like this, just draw it out. It doesn't have to be Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter and 
you know, Fourth of July, uh, one of the teachers had a tradition about whenever company came over, they made a pizza. So they rolled out the dough. The whole, all the, they had little tiny kids, all the little tiny kids, and all the company roll out the dough. They go for a hike while it while it rises. What a great idea! And then they come back and they all decorate it with all the fruits and veggies they can think of. I love that. One more, somebody, who, who you do? Yeah, you well, got it was, the mic. It was just sort of interesting with what he just said, what he just said, and what we were saying that. They have changed. They're mm -hmm. changing. I mean, we've got somebody who doesn't eat gluten. We've mm -hmm. got people who don't eat this and that and the mm -hmm. other. Uh, her grandmother, uh, My husband. your husband's grandmother, did uh, fish from Italy, and, and everybody came by, and that was a big tradition. And now everybody helps cook. All the different members of the family bring things because people are working today, and they can't mm -hmm. do like that grandmother did. So that's a changing culture. Mm -hmm. That that's really interesting. That's true. I'm closing it. Thank you. <laughs> Teach this. Take this lesson. It's lesson three from the curriculum. Go. Great. You know, I love hearing these stories, and we could be here all day sharing them, which is, is so wonderful. I mean, we're creating a food culture as we sit here, and there's such diversity of stories. So I'm sorry to close this particular thing, but we got lots of more fun stuff for you. Now, earlier I showed that short film called Farmer's Markets, and that's actually one of 54 short films that we've produced as part of this Nurse Initiative. Most of them are online and available online, and then we also have a DVD with all of them. So I'm going to do something right now, which is the door prize section of the session, and no one reach for their cell phone here, and here's the question. Whoever can get closest to the right answer is going to get a copy of all 54 of these short films right here. Okay, question is, what is the latest number of farmer's markets in the United States? So take a couple seconds here, think about your number, and I'll poll the room. Whoever's closest will get this, okay? Everyone ready, got a number? All right, 2,000. 3,000. 74,000. 750. 8,000. 35,000. 10,350. She's going for that interim. Okay. 5,000. 50,000. How many farmers markets are there in the United States right now? A million. 990. 6,000. 105,000. 92,000. How many? 800. 800. 15,000. 15,000. 85,000. 12,000. Back the room. Go ahead. Okay. Three. Okay. Twenty thousand. Twenty-two thousand. Three thousand. Nine thousand. Okay. Seven hundred forty-one. Okay. Twenty-five thousand. Okay. 3,500? 12,500. 12,500? 
Okay. 7,000? 4,000. 4, okay. So we're going to have a quick runoff here, which is anyone that said between 7,000 and 9,000, you're still in the running. And now you can refine your guess. Who raise your hand if you're between that? One, two, three. Okay, new guesses. We're sticking with 8,000. Sticking with 8,000. 7,400. 7,400. 8,500. 7,400. 7,400. Okay. The winner is. Someone said 8,500, right? Yeah. That is the winner. Yeah. Woohoo! It's actually a little less than that, but closer than Artie's 8,000. <laughs> Can I talk about the, the video that she's won? Can we talk about what she's won? Go ahead. <laughs> so the 54 bite-sized videos from Nourish, you can get some of these online. This is a great video CD to put in your laptop and watch while you're cooking. This is what I do all the time, actually. You can just open it up, or maybe you've got your TV right there. And they're just a minute, two minute. None of them are more than two and a half minutes long. So it's just great. You can take days, weeks, and watch them. They're wonderful. Sorry. And just because I'm feeling really generous, I have an extra DVD. It's not the short films, but there are 13 of them on here. So Artie's disqualified as a member of the Bioneer staff. Yeah, you are. Who were the other two that guessed in the 7,000s? You said? 7,000, you said what? Okay, now you know it's somewhere between 8,000 and 8,500. Pick a new number and the winner will get this, okay? That's all right. Okay, we, oh, we have two. There's no competition required. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we like, abundance. The actual number is, for inquiring minds that want to know, 8,268. Which is pretty spectacular when you think about it. Believe it or not, five years ago that was about 2,000. So, crazy. All right. Um, did everyone get the handout that has the resources on one side and the food system map on the other? Okay, pass them out if you don't have them. That's great. So part of the work of, of food literacy is considering the whole and understanding connections and relationships. So this next short activity, what I want you to do is take a look at that food system map diagram. And, and just kind of study it and, and see what interests you, what looks like a relationship that you haven't thought about in a while. And I'm going to put up a question that I'd like you to discuss with a partner. And it can be a new one or one of your new friends. Um, and here it is. What new insights do you have from this big picture view and how will these insights affect your personal actions? So take a moment just to study it, see what it is that resonates. Uh, think about places you can intervene as a food literate citizen. And then 
find a partner and respond to these two questions. All right, go ahead and find a partner. And
So we won't care if we can make some fine tunes. So we talked about maybe starting a panel about fire. So I think we'll just do a few stories. And then, for this part, I think we should try to All right, I'm going to bring you back, if I may. Hey, all I can say is you guys are really up for whatever we throw at you, which I love. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, those first couple activities were, you know, a little closer to the heart, and this one is a little bit more in the head, but uh, it's all, all part of being food literate. So um, would anyone like to share kind of insights that emerge from looking at this big picture view? and how that might affect uh, your own actions and initiatives. Yeah. Well, just for some background info. <laughs> just for some background info, I'm an architectural design student in Denver, Colorado. So looking at the chart, I see that there is a line going out for trash that's like exiting the system here. And from a design standpoint, that is just like, who knows how much waste that is. Like if it's supposed to be a functioning system, it needs to be completely closed. So that just like, and then you trace the line back and it's because of all of the different handlers and middlemen that you have to go through for your food, which supports the whole idea of local food, nudge, nudge. But yeah, so that was just standing out to me because it seems very subtle, but it's like, that's a huge like flaw in the system. Great, thank you. What other insights emerge from looking at this? Yes, Artie. Um, the biodiversity piece is the piece that um, I want to talk to a little bit. Um, as beautifully done as this is and completed as this system is so complex that this is actually, you know, doesn't even express all of the interrelationships, right? So biodiversity could, um, is really sort of an underpinning for this. And I'm going to use this moment to just put a plug in for the seed exchange that's happening at 6.30. <laughs> so if you want to... Um, immediately have an impact on your food system, you can, um, you can uh, participate in the seed exchange this afternoon. It's at the big exhibit hall across the bridge. Yeah, if you know where the Epiphany Theater is, it's right across the bridge when you first enter. And how wonderful, a seed exchange. So I highly recommend it, 6.30. not BYOS. Okay. Um, and thank you, Artie, for underscoring that, you know, biodiversity is really, you know, a baseline condition. No question about that. Um, so, good one. Anyone else have something that's an insight? Yes. It's a race. <laughs> the first thing I noticed was um, how, what's absent from that, and that is the importance of healthy oceans and healthy fisheries and the important role that uh, 
wild fish can play in our food system, but I'm from Alaska where that's, we have fish to school programs, not farm to school programs. And then the other thing we were talking about is that things are very siloed in this, and maybe this is what's happening now, but the ideal would be that there's more of a crossover between the social and economic and environmental systems, so we're all working towards those triple bottom line benefits. But. Really great insights. Yes, we struggled with how to get fish in there, and um, I, I will say this, that the food literacy rubric that I mentioned earlier has sustainable fisheries in it, and the Nourish Initiative itself is very much about sustainable seafood. We have some material on the website about that, so I agree that's very much part of our food system. And uh, yes, you know, we really view this map as a work in progress, and for the, the principal reason is to get people to think more systemically. And there's a free study guide that comes with this. This is also freely downloadable off the website. You can get a bigger version, like 18 by 24. Um, and one of the questions on the study guide is, what's missing from this? So you helped answer that one. OK. Um, Do you want another comment on that? Yes, please. Well, I love this. And one thing I was thinking about and is the aspect of, and, and I was trying to see how it might be reflected here, but personal home gardens and neighbors sharing mm -hmm. food and like in our community we're also we have an initiative that we're harvesting we have the benefit of many many wonderful citrus and fruit trees so we've been volunteers and community members harvesting that food and just going straight to the food bank so I don't know if it'd be another circle and some other lines but that's you know great wonderful food is coming into the mix that way as well and supporting people thank you that's a great one I Go just ahead. heard about a young woman who is starting a Craigslist sort yep. of a thing around excess food. So I have 500 pounds of zucchini. Come get it. Or That's know, about but, time to have something yeah. like that. Yes, our persimmons need to be picked, and right. I'll put my, some of them on don't, that. Don't forget cropmobster.com. Yeah. That crop, crop, crop mob mobster.com. Yeah. All right, so... For the rest of our session, what we wanted to do was briefly talk a little bit about our work so that you have some strategies for approaching a food literacy program. And then we really want to hear from you, because I know there's some great thinking and wisdom in this room. Uh, so there'll be plenty of time for both questions and then also for you to share good work that either you're doing or that you want the rest of us to know about, OK? So um, Allison, why don't you join me up here? Turn this light off. Let's see. Oops. Uh, Isn't there something to just make this go black? Oh, that's possible. Um, Where's that other mic? Can we borrow it real quickly? The portable? Thank you. Well, I'm going to start by asking Allison to talk about what it looks like to do a food literacy program 
in a rural part of the state, up near Chico, and how you engage schools and community groups and students and parents and administrators. So talk a little bit about the work that you have done, Allison, and kind of how you went about it. Uh, just give us a little roadmap for okay. what you designed and how it took shape and any challenges that would be good to, to share with the group. Okay. So I'm a health education specialist, and like I said, it's through uh, Chico State Research Foundation, um, Center for Nutrition and Activity Promotion, and we're totally grant-funded, so my scope of work is always defined by the grant that I'm working on. And this past year, um, it was a, a subcontract because public health has been given the SNAP-Ed dollars, so public health doesn't know exactly what to do with that, and I'm not saying all public health or whatever, but I'm just saying we do. We know what to do with those SNAP-Ed dollars. And that's Supplemental Nutrition um, Assistance Program and education. So with those dollars, we can go into schools, because that's what it's targeted for, and do the nutrition ed lessons. Typically, public health curriculum is around my plate and Rethink Your Drink and fiber and, and just things like that that are all good things. But the exciting thing for us was that the Nourish curriculum was approved and so my, my um, the big share that I want to give to you, the big light bulb for me, is that if you're going into a school, they're not going to accept a big grand vision or a big great idea. Hey, I want to come in and I want to help you with this and I want to do that. You need to have that curriculum. You need to have that piece that you can say, okay, this is standards-based, this is common core, this is gonna help your school, this is gonna satisfy what you need on the wellness policy. You wanna come in and say, you need something and I have it, in instead of just wanting to make change. So I think that's where I've had success. And then with the Nourish curriculum, it's really easy. And Kirk said we're not allowed to sell it, so I'm not selling it, I'm just telling you about it. It's free, download it. But um, the lessons are great, and the whole point of it is not my plate or rethink your drink or whatever. It's what's the story of your food? Where's your food come from? So I, I have this corn dog box that I carry around. No corn dogs were eaten by me. I just want to say that. But if you do, I don't judge. No judgment. <laughs> <laughs> right? But so on my corn dog box, there's states all over. It was, it was started here, and it's from this company here. It's all across the whole US, so we can connect to geography right there. You know, where did it start? How did it end up with you? And that's part of the story of your food. And even to the point of um, the waste, like you were talking about, where, where does it go? Is this going to help the environment when I throw it away? What's going to happen to it? when I put it in here. So Nourish addresses all of those things, so it was really easy for me to come into the school and say, hey, I've got this approved curriculum, it's approved by public health, and I'd like to come in and teach these nutrition ed lessons. And that, that was my easy way of getting in. Thank you. And, you know, I just wanted to talk about, you know, what the process of social change looks like, because it's a question that we address all the time. So if we're trying to create a more food literate society, across many institutions, including schools. How do you do that? And you know, I think what we've learned is, first of all, you have to have some materials. So we have videos, we have curriculum, we have a website. One of the things that we just recently finished, which I have up here, is a wonderful uh, package called the Nourish Family Kit. And this is designed to go into a family, and it's got uh, 
learning games and healthy recipes and videos. And we just had a chance to test that on six Navy bases around the world, which was really cool. So you have to have some materials and you know the food system map, things like that. So I invite all of you to look at that collection of nurse resources on the handout that you've been given or other curricula from other organizations and other resources. So find the best stuff because you need that to open a conversation. And our theory of change is that, first of all, you have to open a conversation with your peers and your fellow citizens and your students. You have to talk about this stuff. Then you want to introduce what we call structured learning experiences. And that's where the curriculum comes in, the kind of things we've been doing today I would call structured learning experiences, where you engage people in a learning process. And what Allison didn't say about the, the Nourish curriculum is it's got seven activities. It starts with an activity called story, the story of food, where students trace a whole food and a processed food as far back to its origin as they can. So immediately really thinking about the food system. And the curriculum ends with an activity that we call action projects, where students plan a service learning project in their school or community. So there's this whole arc from story of food to action. And in between, they're learning about things like seasonal and local food, and food marketing, and food traditions, and food and ecosystems. So a lot of great stuff there to draw on. You know, the other part of food literacy is we really do need to develop, I think, a new language and new understandings. And so I'm really big on professional learning, that there are opportunities to do teacher workshops and bring people together for you know, gatherings like this. So I think that's a really important part of social change uh, with this kind of work. Um, and then hopefully, ultimately, what we do is start to form communities of practice where we're sharing you know, what we're doing, like now, learning from one another and getting better and better. Um, and I just want to say that you know, what's been really exciting for me uh, with this Nourish Initiative, which we launched um, about three and a half years ago, is to see how it has become something of interest to virtually every part of society. So we started with a focus on K-12, and uh, we're currently up to about 20,000 educators that are using the materials, which translates into about 5 million students, which is amazing in three and a half years. Then we started getting calls from different organizations and institutions. We heard from a group that works with about 40,000 faith-based congregations, so we developed a package for them. We started working with the US Navy. I could have never in 100 years predicted that would happen. But the Navy wants a healthier food culture, and they want more food literate sailors and families. So now we're working around the world with the US Navy. Um, you know, we're starting to work with corporations that are interested in bringing this in, into their uh, you know, companies. And um, so really, what it takes is a champion. I think all of you are those champions. And, and what I encourage you to do is to really look at your organization, your school, your community, and say, where can I begin to assemble you know, some fellow revolutionaries <laughs> and find ways to begin increasing food literacy? Because good things will happen, for sure. Um, and Allison, let me throw it back to you. What have been some challenges in doing this work? What, what makes it you know, difficult, what are kind of the constraints you found, whether they're, you know, mindset or political or 
institutional, what would you say are some of the big challenges? So I'll get into challenges. I, I just thought when you were talking, another way you could connect this is just is worksite wellness. This is such a big deal right now. We want, we want to have good policies at work. And the, the activities in the Nourish curriculum or food literacy, it's a great idea to get that conversation going and have a, a, a truly valuable worksite wellness policy. So challenges. Well, challenges. Um, the challenge for me is that food service in public school is very defensive. And um, I, I, I always say I don't think that these people started out wanting to give children things that will harm them. I, I don't think that they did. And I, I think they're passionate people who love kids because they do. But because of rules, because of regulations, it is what it is. So when, when um, I'm presented with making a change at a school, I right away go in and meet the food service people. I try to encourage them and tell them, hey, I'm on your side. You know, I want to see change. And, and I encourage them in a way I tell them, I know you want to be serving better food. Because they do. I mean, they're, they're nutrition people, too. And, and truly, they do. They should, right? It is an argument. Anyway, so that's the big challenge that I have is coming in, trying to tweak a little bit of change when that almost requires an act of Congress. Great. Um, yeah, you know, for, for me, the challenges, I think, have to do with just getting people's attention around this and reminding them that food literacy is an opportunity to solve multiple problems at once. And there are very few things that you can point to that create healthier people and communities, that can improve the health of the environment, reduce things like pesticides, protect you know, animal welfare and worker welfare, um, and revitalize local economies. So you know, getting people to think about this as a much you know, bigger solution than just we're helping kids to eat better, I think is a big part of it. Um, I see a hand that's starting to raise. I see other hands. So we're going to actually conclude our piece, because what I'd like to do for the rest of the session is invite questions, but also invite you, if you have a piece of this puzzle called increasing food literacy, to tell us either about what you're doing or a program that you think is exemplary. And my only request is, is try to keep your comments short so we can hear from as many of you as possible. So questions or comments? Uh, first period. Um, my question is, how do you get around economics? Like, I re remember seeing a food movie once about a woman who could either buy this much processed food or this much whole organic produce yeah, for her family. Yeah, great question. You know? How do you deal with the economics? Because good food, some people think good food costs more. A lot of studies actually show that you can make a very nutritious meal for the same cost as you know, going to McDonald's. So I'm not sure that that you know, is, is a real argument. There are some great programs right now, though, to create more parity. So you, some of you probably heard of Double Up Bucks, which are being used where people that get SNAP benefits um, get double the value at a farmer's market. I think it's a great idea, really. Well, and just being able to use your SNAP at yeah. dollars at farmer's market at all is a big deal. And it's true. It's a tough sell. And yet, 
One of the things that I do as well is go around and tell people, hey, if you use your EBT at farmer's market, and most of these 90,000 farmer's markets, not that many, <laughs> except EBT now, but if you use it there, then you're drawing federal dollars down in, into your community. You're giving it to your local farmer who's going to spend it at your grocery store or whatever. Maybe they're, maybe they're going to spend it where you work. So you're helping your local economy by shopping at the farmer's market. So that's something that we do. There's also funding for cooking classes, you know, teaching how to stretch your, stretch your cooking dollars. But I know it's true, and that's a really hard one. How do you tell someone, I, the, the story I heard, I can't afford to go to Disneyland, but I can buy you these Fruit Loops, and that's just as fun. It's yeah, and, and you know, another piece of that is just looking at all the ways to connect your institutions to the local food economy and farmers. So the farm to school program is a great way. <laughs> like, let's connect our schools and farms. You can have farm to institution, whether it's a business or something. So yeah, I think there are ways to solve that problem. And we have a short film in our collection, which is um, called No Free Lunch with Michael Paul, and where he says, you either pay now or you pay later too, which is, you know, healthcare costs are we're, <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> really pay the price. and. Much better to do it on the front end. Okay, over here. You. You? Okay. And then you. Um, Sorry. Go. I, I, well, okay. Um, you know, I would say if you're talking about challenges and um, and successes, I would. One of the things that um, that I personally have been challenged by has to do with with the transition for the food services because they need to be educated as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and they are struggling under a paradigm that, mm -hmm. that does struggle with financial budgetary issues. And, um, and, it, and in some ways, it requires that they not only retool their minds, they need to retool their kitchens. Um, so those are issues. The other issue that um, I run into a lot has to do with um, finding um, the right amount of local suppliers um, that will be able to supply the fresh foods on a seasonal basis, um, and because they vary. Um, farmers are growing things seasonally, um, and different farms are growing things seasonally. So you need to have a, a pretty widespread chain of relationship with local growers to be able to get the, the supply of food that you need to come in with. Um, and I, But I do th sort of, I think the big, I, really I don't, I haven't struggled so much with the, the literacy with the students or the faculty, um, really it's more how it translates in with uh, business managers and with uh, food service, per, you know, or the, the, the administrators for food service, and then them being able to make this um, significant change in who their suppliers are going to be. And I think you kind of, what I've noticed is you sort of have to have, you know, a champion in there somewhere who is going to just say, OK, you know, I'm going to make the connections for you. I'm going to bring them to you. Um, and, um, and then here's the policies that other schools right. are you, these procurement policies. Mm -hmm. So you know, I just think it's a real interesting transition that's going on. But where my big snags lie still remain with the food service folks. Great. Go ahead and pass it back to the woman. Yeah, behind. and that's where food hubs come in, where you can have one invoice for all that local produce. And I teach, uh, I teach the nurse curriculum. I got it uh, when I went to the Edible Schoolyard Academy for a teacher development workshop and when I went to Occidental Arts and Ecology Center for another teacher workshop. And what has been really helpful in um, 
teaching it is I am fortunate we're a really urban school between the Hollywood sign and downtown and we have 1800 students and I have everyone from a student whose father's the art director on Mad Men to another child who told me he really likes coming to school he was sad we were off for Rosh Hashanah because when he comes to school he gets lunch every day so that's the diversity of economics we have at my school so I do for uh, I teach 120 kids this curriculum every year uh, in 10 week sessions. And I supplement it though with um, some of the stuff I learned at Occidental and at Edible Schoolyard. We do scissor salsa in the garden and then the kids have to go home and make it for their family. And I would take them to the farmer's market. There's a farmer's market really near us. We can walk there with half, in half an hour. And they see that you can get these strawberries that are five baskets. I mean, three baskets for $5, which is not that different than the price in the store. And this girl, Rosemary, last year, and I'll never forget this, and it always makes me a little uh, well up a little bit when I think about it. She bit it, and she said, this is what a strawberry tastes like? She had no, she, her face, she had no idea that that's what a strawberry was supposed to taste like. She'd only had the ones that are white inside and white on the top. And so I think what you have to do when you teach this curriculum is also teach the kids how to make the food. Um, they, we just made, we had mild to wild taste tests this week where they tasted kale and chard. And because um, that's what I had in my CSA box. So we tasted kale, chard, uh, lettuce leaves, um, arugula, and they rated it mild to wild. That way nothing was what they liked least. It was just, are you in a mild mood or a wild mood? And then we made balsamic vinaigrette dressing that they can go home and make pretty cheaply. And so they all, their parents are telling me that they're coming home and making salsa and dressing. So while educating them with the Nourish curriculum, giving them a substitution for the things that they may be giving up, like the, um, when we did the food story clues, you know, um, some of the chip things they found out is that Cheetos aren't real food, you know? <laughs> and we set Cheetos on fire to show, you know, the oil that drips out, because we show how the energy's burned, and then what's left over is what your body absorbs, and it's this like puddle of gross, disgusting oil, and that's just from one Cheeto. And I think you just have to teach the kids how to go home and teach their parents. And if you can get the kids excited about making that food, then the parents will learn from the kids. And if they see the kids cooking, I think that's the way we transform the next generation, and is to get the kids to own that food making and to see. And they were all eating greens. They were eating charred greens. They were eating, we had herb tasting, and they were, it was, they were eating things that I think if you'd said, here, eat the salad, they wouldn't have been interested. But when they were rating it mild to wild, they were really excited about what was the mildest and what was the wildest. So exciting. And I think Harvest of the Month, too, would, would, would be a good connection with that. Just tasting the fruit or vegetable of the month and then connecting with the cafeteria. Hey, this is the Harvest of the Month. This is what we're going to have. Can you please serve, you know, kids all thought cabbage looked like coleslaw. And that's one of the uh, challenges we have is that we've got this food system in the LAUSD that is, um, it's really difficult. Jamie Oliver got kicked out of our school district for trying to rehaul, oh yeah, uh, for trying to overhaul it. And we've run into some real problems with trying to overhaul it. Okay, challenges. let's get to next? as many people as we can here, and then we'll come back to you. Yeah. Um, and I think it's got things in the wrong place. You got climate change over on the biological side. 
or that's really driven by economics. There's nothing about fossil fuel in here, which our current food system uses a tremendous amount of fossil fuels. Um, you know, it's just, uh, I think it's a complicated thing. This is a huge oversimplification. And um, maybe you need to have two. Maybe you need to have one that's our current food system mm -hmm. and a second one that's like uh, a, re a revisioned food system that we could be moving towards. Because yeah. this has got you know elements of both, and it's missing stuff, and it's got stuff in the wrong places. And, um, so I just wanted to yeah, let know and about you know what? It's great that you're critiquing it because you know for me, part of its role is to get people talking about these issues. And yeah, there's no question that there could be a version that's sort of the you know preferred food system, and it would look different. Um, you know, we tried to make this as neutral as possible, so you know, you could kind of bring your own vision to it. Um, but yeah, you know, this is, I'm glad it, it sparked some, some uh, comments and I'm glad that you're looking at what's missing and that's exactly what we want. As I said, a work in progress. Thank you. I'm also an educator and a chef and I live in Sonoma and I complained for about 10 years because my daughter was in the school system. Luckily, she started out in a school that actually cooked food, and that was part of why we felt comfortable there. But then when I was substituting in the rest of the district, I was like, I can't believe you're feeding this to the children. And, and every time I'd be in a social situation, I'd bring it up. Well, now it's different. It's changed. Mm -hmm. And um, we have all the parking lots covered with solar panels that are shading the parking lots. We have gardens at every single school. And part of the curriculum that's um, mandated by the superintendent, but the, all the teachers aren't completely on board yet, but these um, vegetables show up each month. With a kit, um, with some suggestions about um, lessons that could be made around the cabbage, for example, that showed up while I happened to be there. So, you know, I found a book about cabbages and, you know, we, we had fun with it and I made coleslaw. But a lot of the other teachers were looking at me like, why are you going along with that program? But I love food. I'm all about food, you know, and I think it's right. When you get the kids in it and then the summer school, I was teaching in the Walder school, we made salsa and if the kids do it, then it's theirs, and they own it, and, and they'll eat it even if it's green. <laughs> it's true. If kids make it, they do seem to eat it, and if they grow it, they eat it. I love watching kids hop around and be zucchini and eat zucchini. I've been um, working with Kids Cooking for Life, and we've gotten into after-school programs, and we're working with um, different um, hospital education and all, but I, I think it needs to be in the schools, and that's why I was curious what, you know, how she got this program in the schools, of course, like over in Berkeley with uh, Edible School Garden, and uh, so I, so you go into the schools and talk to who, the principal? How do you well, it, the SNAP-Ed dollars are out there, and it's SNAP-Ed. It's Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Right. Education. I didn't know that. So okay. it's it's funded by CalFresh, basically by by the by food stamps. Okay. And so if the school qualifies, then then public health has dollars to go in and teach nutrition ed, and that's why the wow. principals will let us do it. And so the students that go in and teach it are, are like I said, these Chico State students who are awesome, and sometimes I get to be that that person, and I. 
I do love it. But anyway, that's, that's how we get in. So your public health department does have those funds, and they can come to your school. Okay, I don't, we don't have to just deal with the after-school program that's individual with each school. You, sometimes I, it's, it's easier as, to connect with the after-school program, well, like you say, and it's definitely a neglected area. It's good to connect with yeah, after-school, but, but it you're needs right. to be in the schools. Okay, thank you. We are very close to completing the session. I just want to see if there's any other questions or comments. <laughs> Our farmer. Our farmer. Um, I'm going to mention the farm club at the Reading uh, Farmer's Market. Children go to a certain table at the farmer's market and get some tokens. I think it's for $2. And they can spend that for fresh produce at the farmer's market. And then they have a lot of fun talking to the farmer who sells it. And, and they can take it home with, to their parents and things like that. And that has been funded in the past by Healthy Shasta, which I think is part of the SNAP program. Mm -hmm. And now the funding is going to have to come from a different source. And our organization called Growing Local is working on a grant to get that funded to, so it continues. Good. And we have a farm to school program going on as well where kids, if, if they do go and meet their local farmer, they get a sticker from the farmer so they learn about it in school. And, and then the farmers get so excited when the kids come and say hi at the market. It is getting late. I'm sure people are hungry and ready to refresh for the evening. So I just want to thank all of you for coming. I hope you're feeling more food literate than when you arrived and are ready to take this out in the world. So thank you very much. And uh, before you leave the woman from Los Angeles, yes. I just want to briefly talk to you because you are a candidate to write a Nourish and Action story yes. for the website. So I'd just like to talk to you. Thank you all. Have a great evening. Seed Exchange, 630.